This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is hit well in a center field. That one's carrying out at center. It's out of here! Oh, Johnny with a pinch hit home run! At the plate is Mike Trout, the pitch on its way, it's blasted out to dead center field. Out of here. Ball gets away. He's going to break for the plate. Ball game is over. The Angels with a walk-off win here in the bottom of the ninth inning. This is the Angels Recap Podcast, a review of the past week in Angels baseball. Here's your host, Trent Rush. What's going on, everybody? Hello and welcome. My name is Trent Rush. Excited to be with you here today on the Angels Recap Podcast. Hopefully baseball coming back soon. I know there's a lot of rumors out there uh, and chirping. I'm telling you, I'm I'm ready to be done with the rumors and ready for facts. I I want baseball back soon, and hopefully uh, that happens. But in the meantime, I got to tell you one thing that I really have enjoyed through this process. And again, this process is terrible. I've talked about that before. However, the fact that we get to go back and enjoy some of the great moments and great teams in Angels history, I'm having a blast with. And and you know on this podcast the last couple of weeks, we talked a lot about the 2002 Angels and why not the only World Series team in Angels history. But you can make the case that the best team in terms of talent – could be the 2009 Angels. Now, I'm sure there's folks on the 2002 team that would say, hey, wait a minute, we were the ones that won a title. But you look at the 2009 Angels when the likes of Vladimir Guerrero, Torrey Hunter, Kendrys Morales, Sean Figgins was big uh, that season, Jared Weaver, uh, John Lackey uh, still having a lot of success, Howie Kendrick, Mike Napoli. That was a loaded team that the Angels had that season. Eric Ibar, that group ended up winning 97 games, went to the American League Championship Series after sweeping the Red Sox in the ALDS, finally beating Boston, who had won all four of the previous meetings in the postseason as far as series are concerned. So 2009, that was a great Angels team. And here to talk about it now, we welcome Tori Hunter to the show. Tori, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm, I'm all right, man. I can't complain considering uh, all the things that are going on because everybody's going through the same thing, some craziness in the world and just stand safe, man. Stand at home. Stand in place. Yeah, I know it's uh, tough on a lot of people, and I know there's a lot of people hurting right now. But uh, I would imagine a big culture shock to you. You're a busy, busy guy. You always got something going on. It seems like. Man, man, you know what? It's too much to do in this world, you know, and on this earth, man. I, you know, I always say before I die, I want to make sure I do everything possible and live adventurous, and uh, and that's what I'm trying to do, man. And trying to make people better, serve people, and and, uh, and and create jobs and different things like that, you know, while I'm still learning along the way. So, um, yeah, I can't stop, man. I was real tired <laughs> of baseball <laughs> and uh, and not retired. 
so I never retire. I was just real tired of baseball, and I'm going to do something else. <laughs> good, for, good, good for you. Hey, I want to talk about uh, some some moments of your baseball career. You know, one of the cool things. I, I mean, th- this whole thing is awful, but some silver lining has come out of this because we're getting a chance to relive some of the great moments in Angels history. Now, last week or in the week before that, we went through the 2002 run. This week, we're going through the Angels 2009 season, which is such a special uh, campaign in so many ways, and, and we'll get into the playoffs in a moment. Uh, obviously, the tragedy of Nick Aidenhart early that season, but even coming into that year, Tori, uh, you'd been on the club the year before that. What was the sense that of, of what that Angels team could be in 2009? Oh, man, we, you know, uh, coming off that season in 2008, you know, of course, we, we got <laughs> swept by the, the Red Sox in the postseason in 2008, um, and it was a tough tough time for us but when we got into spring training in 2009 I, I felt something in the air of you know acquiring Bobby Abreu and and uh the guy was so smart at the plate so patient I think he taught all of us to to be more patient and swing at strikes except Vladimir <laughs> <laughs> Vladimir he could hit anything you know uh but he, uh I think he you know bringing him aboard actually helped out a lot in the clubhouse he was funny on the field, he was very witty, and uh, uh, so just a different camaraderie and chemistry uh, in spring training. And Sos did a great job of bringing us together in early in the morning in the meetings. It was so hilarious, and uh, and it just kind of carried over onto the field. And uh, so you kind of felt it early in spring training that it was going to be a special year. Man, you could argue, and there's people that will argue this, that that 9 club might have been the best team in Angels history. Won 97 games that year uh, with the ALCS. But uh, just the way that roster was built, and you talk about the camaraderie and you bring in Abreu, it seems like this group really got along right from the start. Yeah, that's, that's definitely what happened. Right in spring training, that's, that's when you start building that chemistry camaraderie. A lot of people don't like that that, that uh, um fan or chemistry camaraderie because you can't really touch it. You can't feel it and you can't collect data from it. Uh, and so I, it's like catching a flu. You can't see it, but if you catch it, it's going to impact you in a, a big way. That's what chemistry and camaraderie does in the clubhouse. And you want to catch that as soon as possible. And I think we did. Um, you, you talk about one of the best teams I've ever been a part of, period. You know, um, defensively, offensively, first to third, instinctively. Uh, we, we had a nice squad, a nice mix of guys. And you talk about the chemistry coming together early. Well, a big test early in that season uh, with the passing of Nick that April. Um, what do you remember about that time and the way that team was able to grieve and, and play for him in so many ways? Man, that, that was tough, man, because, you know, any guy that comes up and they're young and, we, we, you know, most of the veteran guys, the guys who've been there for a while, they, they, they embrace him and make sure his transition from the minor league to the major league goes well. And he was starting, so we wanted him to be comfortable because we needed him to start, and we're all trying to win. And uh, so we want him to get his first win as well. Uh, but me, meeting him in spring training uh, the earlier that year in and, and 09, I was able to give him a ride to the same apartment complex that I was staying in. My son, Tori. Uh, Junior Money and Darius was sitting back with him a couple times and play with him, and uh, and it was tough when I heard the news after his start against Oakland A's. I think he went seven innings, a shutout ball, 
uh, was winning one to zip when he came in, or I think it was six innings or something like that. But he had shutout baseball he pitched, and uh, and it was tough because I saw him. I was probably one of the last ones to leave the clubhouse, and I saw him with the ice on his shoulder, and he said he was going to hang out with some friends that went to Cal uh, State Fullerton and uh, Cal Fullerton. And um, and I went home and went to bed, and 6, 7 a.m. I get a phone call and said, Nick Aidenhart passed away. And I I'm the, I was dumped. I was like numb. I couldn't believe it. I just talked to this kid. They talked to my, my sons. My sons were in high school, so I had to call them and tell them. And it's like, what, Nick? You know, and it's just, it was it was an unsurreal thing, man, and it was tough for the team for a while. But we, we, we started playing for him. Uh, we started playing the game. We, we played with some purpose, some passion. And uh, the team was already good, but to boost the team like that, it took us to another level. Tori, for your entire career, people have talked about you being a leader. How are you supposed to lead in a time like that? And you know what? It's, I, I don't I don't say I'm a leader. I let other people say those things. I never once said I was a leader of the clubhouse. I'll say I'm the veteran or the Shaolin monk or <laughs> something. But, but I, you know, I, I, um, I, I think in those situations, man, it's, it's all about how people feel. You know, you go and check the temperature, and you got to get to know each and every last one of your players. Or, or if you're in your job, you got to get to know each and every last one of your employees. Some you got to push a different way. You know, some you got to tap on the butt. Some you got to uh, kick in the butt. Some you got to lift up with words. Some you got to give them something tough. And and uh, so I I I just I might have had a gift that I didn't realize until I got older that. That's one thing I did. Whether I had something going on in my life or I struggled at the plate or something going on off the field, uh, I didn't really care about that. I, all I cared about was how you felt. I tried to lift that other person up to go to the next level in his life or her life, and, uh, and, and, and that's how you lead, by serving others, trying to figure out you know, a relationship between uh, a bond between you and that player or that employee, and that's what I try to do. Talk about Tory Hunter right now. Tory, I realized that when I mentioned the 2002 playoff run, it was a lot different for folks in Anaheim than it was uh, for those in Minnesota uh, that season. <laughs> so I apologize for bringing up a sore subject. I do have to tell you, though, where the games were just airing and we got, and, you know, they do the, the interviews and the kind of cutaways. You get the players talking. I got to say, that was the most soft spoken Tory Hunter. I didn't even recognize that guy in 2002. I was busting up uh, seeing that. When, when did you kind of feel like you were, uh, kind of into your own as a major leaguer oh man back then you know i was still trying to find my identity you know and know who i really who who was i you know and um and and that's probably why i was more soft-spoken because i might not have the confidence i, I should have had but i still play well i still went out and played fierce i played you know, with a smile, but I call it the vicious smile because I would smile and then try to take you out at second base and run your catcher over <laughs> and try to rob a home run. So I played with a vicious smile. and uh, uh, But I didn't really get my confidence until a couple years later uh, when I really feel like, oh, man, I belong here. Uh, I've got some, some experience. I had some failures. I made adjustments. And now I see a lot more. And uh, I was, and it was very um, – uh, I was very confident, not arrogant, not cocky about what I can do. I trusted myself. 
you know, Tori, it's interesting you say that because, you know, you were an all-star, you know, in 2002, famously Robin Barry Bonds. And, uh, you know, just that whole year, you'd been in the big leagues uh, for a while, you know, uh, really were playing, you know, a lot by the time you were 23 years old. I'm a little surprised that, that, you know, maybe it felt like it took you a few years to get that confidence. Is that something that you use when you're talking with other players now that are trying to come up and, and trying to make it in the big leagues? Oh, yeah, man. I tell them all the time. I mean, once you think you're good and you stop learning, um, you can forget about it. Your career is about to end. <laughs> so yeah. I, I was one of those guys because maybe I thought I didn't have enough confidence in myself, so I always seeked out information. You know, I always went to guys like, uh, what do you do in this situation? I talked to Rod Carew. What do you do in this situation? You know, I, I talked to all the veteran guys. How do they get out of a situation, whether it's on the field or off the field? And I always wanted to get uh, information and knowledge so I can apply it to my, my life or my my baseball career. And so I, I, I never really didn't, – I didn't get that confidence until I realized people start coming to me. Uh, players start coming to me for information. And it might have took a while. In 2002, I was still young with a bunch of young guys on the team. We all came up together, and it was about 12 of us. So we didn't have a lot of veteran guys on our ball club. And and, uh, and so when I got older, and then I saw these younger guys coming up uh, early, uh, late on in Minnesota, they actually was coming to me. So I had to give all those things that I've experienced and learned from other people and, and in my own life, and give it back to them. So and make them, and try to make them better and skip a process of turmoil and pain that I went through and help them skip over that process. Yeah, I mean, that's great if you can do it. Everybody goes through it, and it's just kind of it's surprising sometimes because you see people that have had incredible success, and, and everybody has their struggles. I want to go back to that 2009 season, Tori. Uh, so you mentioned the Red Sox getting you in 2008. Well, then you get them to start uh, the postseason in 2009. Going into that series against Boston, I mean, just how much of a chip did you have from the year before? Oh, man, you know, even before that, before 2008, I think all, a couple of years before that, uh, the Angels had lost 11 you know, straight. Yeah. And and I, was, I wasn't a part of that, you know. So we kept hearing about it and reading about it. And, and then it happened in 2008. You know, we got beat. And then uh, it, I said, I was just telling myself, and I tried to talk to the team and a lot of players, this, this is not happening this year. This is a team that everybody in the, in the lineup was uh, – we had a couple guys wearing a gold glove that year. And then in August, in the August, uh, it was the whole lineup was hitting 300. Yeah. That was the Angels record. I mean, it might have been a record in, in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I, I, really I, I think it's the only that. time that's ever happened. Yeah. Only time that I've ever seen everybody in the lineup, one through nine, was hitting 300 or more. And, and uh, it's amazing that – you know, before that talk, I was like, no, it's not going to happen. We're going to dust these boys this year. And, you know, and we had other guys that stood up and talked about that. And Bobby Abreu, he's like a quiet, spoken, soft-spoken leader. And he went out there and had a good series. And, and uh, Vladimir and, and uh, Albar had a great series. So it was just uh, we all came together and collaborated together and, and, and uh, did what we had to do. 
And you got great pitching performances uh, that postseason, too. I mean, most notably John Lackey in Game 1 and then Jared Weaver doing the same thing in Game 2 of that series. You hit the big home run in Game 1, basically sealed that one. How did that feel at the time, that particular home run? Oh, man, it was was just a great feeling, man. It was early on, and and, uh, we were able to – it was early in the game, I think. We hit a three-run home run off of John um, Lester. Was it Lester? Yep. John Lester, and uh, he threw me a cutter inside, and I was able to put it out there in the rocks, man. And it felt so good because, you know, Boston and I, I just don't really, didn't really like Boston at all. <laughs> Even before I came to the Angels, I didn't like them at all. It, it was, their fans were so, so bad to me, man. The things they said it was not even supposed to be spoken in, a, in real life. Uh, so I just kind of uh, had a chip on my shoulder for Red Sox anyway. And so just to pump these guys up and start off with that three-run homer, uh, it, it kind of boosts you up and gives you that confidence that you can get the thing done. Uh, and so it, it, and one of the best pitchers in the game, John Lester, yeah. to do it off him, it actually helps the whole team go, you know what? He's human. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get him. Hey, that, that's cool hearing you say that and kind of walk us through uh, what that was like uh, with, with that 2019. You, men, you mentioned the 300 averages across the board in the lineup uh, at one point in that 2009 season. I know a lot of times in baseball today it seems like more value is getting put on, on base percentage and people look at things like OPS maybe weighted more a little bit than they were uh, even in 2009, which really wasn't all that long ago. Um when you talk about batting average, what's the significance of that uh, for you? And, and are you somebody that, that still weighs batting average more than maybe you would on base percentage? How do you see it? I think batting average is key. You know, I think um, it shows me that you can make contact. It shows me that you can spray the ball all, all over the field. Uh, on base percentage, it's, it's really good depending on who you are. Now, if you're a leadoff guy, you're a speed demon, and you getting walks and you're just getting on base a lot, you're getting a ton of hits and you're, you're getting walks. You get on base, you change the whole game. Put Trout on base, first base every time. He's going to go first and third or fourth and first every time, even on the single. Yeah. So uh, it makes sense for him to have a high on-base percentage. But it doesn't make sense for, like, Pujols or, or uh, Peter Alonzo or whoever, the guy that can't run, well, why? I don't really care if he has an on-base percentage high because he's not going anywhere. If David Ortiz was on base and he had a high on-base percentage, I'm not going to pay him because of his high on-base percentage. I'm going to pay him because he bangs and he gets RBIs and homers. So, and then another guy you have to pay according to his on-base percentage. So it's, it depends on who it is because some guys doesn't mean if he gets walked, I don't care because he's not going anywhere. He's a stationary player. Sure. I, so, um, yeah, I, I do weigh batting average more than uh, a lot of people in the in the game today. Let's talk about Mike Trout for a second. Uh, and obviously, it's famous, you know, your influence on Mike early in his career. What do you remember about that time seeing Mike first come up? And was that a scenario where you kind of felt like, okay, you know, maybe my responsibility is to mentor this guy a little bit, or did he come to you? What? How'd that play out? I mean, Trout, Trout, I mean, it was all him. It wasn't me. A lot of guys before Trout came up to me because of what I've done in the game, the experience. And if you want to go somewhere and, and, and do something in your life, you're not going to go to a guy that's never done anything. 
You know, you're going to always, for me, when I was younger, I went up to Kirby Puckett and, and Dave Winston. I went up to those guys, Paul Molitor, because they've done some things in the game. So that's what, that's the experience I want. I wouldn't go to someone that's in the minor leagues with me to talk to them about getting to the next level. So Trout, he had a great upbringing with his mom and dad or something because the first thing he did was go seek out me and Bobby. Oh, well, not Bobby, but uh, a couple guys, veteran guys on the team, just say, hey, you know, what, what, what should I do? And he wanted to know all these things. He had questions for you every day. And that, that's when I knew I said, this guy is special because he asks questions. A lot of guys are afraid to do that or they think they know it all already. You know, I've seen a lot of knowledgeable failures, and he wasn't one of them. And uh, so I, I definitely think Trout, I saw Trout in 2011 and said, this guy is special. He wants to learn, and he's patient at the plate, and he waits for his pitch even at the age 19. Watch out. <laughs> well, I guess you hit the nail on the head with that one. Uh, I guess that one worked out okay. Speaking of young outfielders, there's uh, several good young outfielders in the Angels system. I know that there is one near and dear to your heart, and that'd be Torrey Jr., who's trying to climb his way uh, through the Angels mm-hmm. system. What's it been like for you as a dad getting to watch him play and have this experience going through Pro Bowl? Man, it's, it's crazy because, uh, you know, he's starting to see everything that I used to talk about uh, in baseball where you don't matter how much of an athlete you are, you're going to fail. And, and, and you got to accept it and make adjustments ASAP. Like you got to teach yourself to have amnesia after you make the adjustment. And, uh, and he's, he's, the last three years he's seen that. And he's seen that he has to trust the process. And, and I told him it's going to take a while. Uh, and, you know, me as a dad, it's hard for your kid to listen to your dad, so I get other people to talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> I get other people to say what I've already said to him. And, uh, and, but, you know, now he's starting to grow and understand uh, the process and understand what I was saying. And so we're having better conversations. Sometimes he's sitting and say, Pops, what do you think about the situation, this situation in baseball? And I'm like, wow, we've been up having great conversations about baseball. So he's definitely learned a lot, you know, coming coming from a guy who's a football player in Notre Dame, tough, and then you go to baseball where it's a game of failure. No matter what you do, you can do everything right, you're out. And and uh, and he he sees that now. He's more he's giving more to his baseball routine and more of his baseball body, not the football body. Uh, so I definitely think. Uh, he has a really good chance. He's a speedster. The game changed, you know, right before he got there with home runs. And But uh, I definitely think he's very valuable for the organization, just like I love Jordan Odell. You know, yeah. I love Jordan, man, Odell. He, he's really good. I love Joy and had a chance to hang out with him, you know, being around Tory and, uh, and they're special, special kids. When you say you love Jordan Odell, what do you see in Joe? Man, Joe – First thing I see is that he has some confidence. You know, uh, he he understands that he belongs in the big league because the way he played through the minor league, he knew that he didn't supposed to be there, and he knew that at an early age. There's nothing he said. There's nothing you know that he's trained. Just on the field, the way he carries himself, he's always ready. When he swings, he swings with with emotion and passion. He tries to destroy you. And he plays the game with a lot of fun as well. I was able to coach him in a futures game uh, in 2018. 
And, it, and that was so much fun having him on the ball club. He was laughing and cracking jokes and good on the bench. And, you know, these guys are elite players as well, and they're looking to him to make them laugh, you know. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I definitely think, man, he's special. You're going to love him uh, uh, when he gets to the big league, if he's not in the big league this year. Um, so uh, he's one of my favorite players in that organization. And I think he's going to be special, too. I'm just ready. We just need baseball to come back, and then we can get him up here and uh, get a chance to see him on the field here at the Big A. That's what we're all looking forward to. Yeah. Uh, Tori, you're always an active guy and always have been really active in the community as well. Is there anything that – any projects maybe you've been working on lately, things that you're uh, trying to do to help others? Because I know that's always been such a big part of your life. That's <laughs> uh, still, still something that I do. One thing that was always near and dear to my heart was feeding others. You know, um, I, I'm a part of a, uh, a, a organization that called Mini Food Pantry uh, here in Plano, Texas, and and uh, they feed people all over the country, but mainly in this Dallas and New York area, Bronx, New York. Uh, and I've been a part of that for a long time because I was one of those kids in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, a place called Neighbor to Neighbor, that stood in line for food because we didn't have any food to eat, and uh, and they took care of us, you know, at least once a week that we can have some food. And uh, and so it's really near and dear to my heart. It might not be near and dear to everybody else's heart, but those true basic needs of feeding people, shelter and clothing, are things that I'm really uh, interested in and, and I continue to do uh, no matter what, whether I'm playing baseball or not. It's something that we should do as a people. Tori, that's fantastic. Hey, I, thank you so much for doing this. It's great to hear from you. It's great to catch up. I'm looking forward to seeing you at the Big A's soon, and, and maybe uh, it'll be one of those days where Tory Jr. is out on the field, and maybe sooner than that. Who knows? But I really appreciate it, seriously, and uh, be well during this crazy time, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me, Trent. Be safe. Just such cool stuff right there from Tory Hunter talking about Mike Trout and Joe Adele, but also that 2009 team, the challenge they came after the passing of Nick Adenhart. Uh, just remarkable what that 2009 team was. Somebody needs to write a book on the 2009 Angels. I tell you, I'll be the first one in line. I'd go read that book. Uh, I want to hear all about that team because I, I think that group was fascinating. And Tory is a great storyteller and uh, really do appreciate having him on this show. Something else uh, going on here in Orange County. Now, I know this isn't Angels related, but it is Orange County baseball related, and I want to talk about this. Uh, my friend Chris Epting, who you've heard on the show many times before, has talked a lot about baseball history in Orange County, and it has so many great stories. Well, Chris is actually working on a new project in the city of Fullerton, putting together an exhibit for the Lasorda family. And Chris will explain, but I think this goes beyond the Angel-Dodger rivalry. Tommy Lasorda and the Lasorda family has been such a huge part of Orange County baseball, which is really one of the baseball hotbeds in the entire country. Uh, Tommy Lasorda, in fact, has been a part of the Dodger organization even longer than Vin Scully, 70 years, and for being married to the Dodgers for 70 years, he's also been married uh, to his wife, Joe, that same amount of time. So a uh, pretty neat story the Lasordas are. And now let's welcome Chris Epting uh, here to talk about this new project. Chris, what can you tell us about uh, your big news here in the last week? Well, I am really excited. It actually goes back about six months or so when I was contacted by Laura Lasorda, Tommy's daughter, Tommy and Joe's daughter. And she and I have known each other for a while. And she said, you know what? I would love you to come in as a writer, maybe come once a week for lunch with my folks and just start getting their story together. Everybody knows a lot of the baseball, but let's kind of take a different angle on it. We didn't know what it was going to be. Is it going to be a book? Is it going to be? We just weren't sure. So I started going to the house, which is amazing in and of itself. 
uh, every week or so. We'd have lunch and just talk, and then people would drop by, or former players and friends. And the more I thought about it, you know, the Lasortas have lived in Fullerton uh, here in Orange County for about 60 years. And one of the projects I thought would have been uh, really fun to do that hadn't been done was to go to the Fullerton Museum Center, which is a great you know, place in Fullerton, and, and present this idea of doing an, an exhibit on the Lasorda legacy, not just in Fullerton, but in baseball and his family, really kind of an expansive look at this man's you know, life. And, uh, and they were really excited. Um, Kelly Chittister, who's like the director there, she, Laura and I went there and met with her. She took to it right away. The museum loved it. And so we are really thrilled to announce that a year from right now, April 2021, and it does take that long to get an exhibit of this scope together. Like, we're working on it right now. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be unveiled in Fullerton, and, and Tommy is excited, and Joe is excited. Everyone's really uh, thrilled about this. And I am, too, because, hey, I get to go through all the baseball stuff and hear the firsthand stories and, and the photos and all. So for me, it's just been an amazing experience. And, and it's finally good to, to, to break the news, especially with you, because I know what kind of baseball fan you are. And look, even though, you know, look, we're both Angels guys. I get that. But I think the Lasorda name, it's bigger than Dodgers. It's bigger than baseball. I mean, he in his house, you see the letters from the Pope on the wall, you know, and you get that it's a whole different thing. It's, it's more than baseball, and that's the story we're going to try and tell. I would be fascinated to hear about some of those lunches that you've had with Tommy and, and when guests drop by. What can you tell us about the Lasorda family story? Well, the thing you get right away is that Tommy's wife, they just celebrated their 70th anniversary. And and you get right away that without Joe, there there's no Tommy story. She really is um, the person that held everything together at home, um, including him. And he tells you that. I mean, he's the first one to sit you down and say, "Let me tell you about my wife." You know, and and that's the thing that to me really resonates. It's just her story as it pertains to his. Another thing I found really fascinating is his pre-Dodger life. You know, when he was a pitcher, you know, in the leagues back east. He's got some amazing early baseball stories in the 40s and 50s. You know, and then he gets you, you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he gets you his life as a scout. I mean, before he was the manager uh, for the Dodgers, which started, I believe, in 76, you know, his life up until that point was really fascinating and, from a baseball standpoint, very unique. Then, of course, you get the Dodgers, and, it, you know, the roof blows off, and it becomes a whole new kind of story. In Hollywood, with all the celebrities, I mean, you know, you look at all the photos. I want one story that Joe told me uh, on one of our first lunches there was how after certain games, uh, Tommy would come home, you know, from Dodger Stadium, get home, you know, after midnight at some point, and the phone would ring in the kitchen. And if it was that late, they knew who it was going to be. It was Frank Sinatra. And he would be calling to sort of challenge certain calls that Tommy made during the game. And she says they would debate the game in the kitchen, like that very kitchen today. And so your mind tries to picture what it would have been like with Tommy Lasorda going at it with Frank Sinatra over calls he made that night. So, again, there's, there are so many um, pieces to this story that are, are wonderful and fascinating and beautiful and loving. And it's, it's just I'm, I'm thrilled because, again, uh, as much as we know about Tommy, there's a lot more that we're going to show people. And, and in terms of the artifacts and things, this exhibit's going to be one part Lasorda Museum because of all the incredible things that he has in his possession. That is so 
exciting and so cool. I mean, I can't even imagine uh, listening to that phone call of hearing Frank Sinatra go at it with Tommy Lastorda. Uh, you, you talk about two big personalities right there, too, uh, which is just awesome. What is it about uh, the Lasorda name in Orange County? You know, I, I've grown up in Orange County my, my whole life. I've, I've lived here, and I know that you have spent a long time, Chris, mm-hmm. uh, in the OC. What What is the association in your mind with what the Lasorda family means to baseball here in this area? Well, look, I mean, I, I don't know that a lot of people know that it's an Orange County story because of its connection to the Dodgers, you know. And, and when they settled down here, they were just a family starting out. You know, they didn't have a lot. Um, and, and so I like that idea that they sort of grew up with the county. Orange County was a very different place 60 years ago, you know. And so they've been here through all the changes. You know, they're, they're embedded in the community. That's why I think this is so special, too. The fact that you've got such a great museum in Fullerton, and that's where they live. You know, that right there, that was just waiting to happen. You know what I mean? Um, to be able to celebrate this all throughout Orange County. But, I mean, in Fullerton, you know, Fullerton's got a great history all its own. I mean, look, Babe Ruth was in Fullerton, you know, before he went to play against Walter Johnson uh, in 1924. He spent the night at a hotel in Fullerton. So you've already got things. You've got a great little park there called uh, Amherst, where, you know, spring training was held for a lot of teams. Bob Feller played there at Amherst uh, Park. Uh, Satchel Page played there. So Fullerton already has a great baseball story. Walter Johnson went to Fullerton High School. Um, so, so I love building on that. We'll make that part of the exhibit, Fullerton's connection to all of this as well. But as far as Lasorda's name, look, it's, um, it, it's a brand name around the world. You know, he's, he's um, as recognizable as anybody. He's now the oldest living Hall of Famer. He's, uh, and he's the great ambassador for the game. I think really as successful as he was as a manager, for me, it's his ambassadorship and the way he plays it forward. I mean, the number of young people that he has inspired and motivated over the years, that alone is, is a rich story. And we're going to represent that. We're going to tell that story about the people he's met along the way who just, after one meeting, their lives are positively altered. And I think he understands what he means to the game, and he honors it himself. He knows who he is. That's why he'll always stop. If you go to a game with him, which I've had the pleasure of doing a few times, you know, you'll try and get from point A to point B, and, of course, everyone will see him out, like, in the, in the concourse. He wants to stop and talk to everybody. And, you know, the handles will be like, Tommy, you got to be here at this time. But the reason he's always late in the ballpark is because he's stopping, he's taking pictures, he's shaking hands, he's signing autographs. He gets who he is, and he knows what he means to people. But most importantly, he honors it, he delivers on it. And that's something that I think is really impressive as well. It's not always that way with guys that big, as we all know. We want it to be, but it isn't always that way. With Tommy, it is. Chris, that's just awesome. And, you know, we, we're used to seeing Tommy Lasorda all the time at the big A, whenever the Angels and Absolutely. Dodgers meet, especially in the Mike Sosha era. Uh, Tommy was around all the time, and uh, we still enjoy seeing him at the big A, and hopefully we can see him and everybody else at the big A real soon. Chris, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, listen, Trent, I'm excited. I know you're excited, and I would love you to help us get this whole thing uh, talked about next year. You're, you're a close friend of all of ours, and uh, – 
would love to make you part of this as well. Chris, I really appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. And thanks again for coming on our show here. That's going to just about do it for us here on the Angels Recap Podcast. Thanks to Tori Hunter and to Chris Heptig uh, for joining us. Just cool to go down memory lane and, you know, talk about the history of baseball in Orange County. And, and since the 60s, it, the Angels have dominated that. But before that time, a lot of neat stuff. And Chris's great stories. And you can always hear uh, my sports page on Angels Radio AM830 KLAA. A couple times a week, I've been going. And uh, opening up the history books and telling some cool OC baseball stories. A, a lot of those books have actually been written by Chris Epting, so there's a lot of neat stuff out there. But uh, going through that 2009 Angels team, that is just downright special. You can catch the games if you download this podcast right away. You can catch the entire uh, 2009 playoff run with the Angels going to the ALCS on AM830. Games are also going to be from Fox Sports West as well as we continue our Angels playback, reliving some of the best moments in Angels history uh, while we're all trying to get through this pandemic and hopefully new, live, fresh Major League Baseball games uh, can be on the horizon. I know I'm hoping that is coming real soon. All right, have a great rest of your day and thanks for joining us here on the Angels Recap Podcast. Take care.